Now, the apostles and brothers who were to get who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So what's happening here is Peter's having to give a defense for what happened in the last chapter. And today, just to give you a kind of idea about what's happening, it's really a, a tale of two churches. There's the Jerusalem church and the church in Antioch, or if you want to be a correct theologian, the Antiochene church today. So put that in your back pocket for later. Impress your friends. You might have different friends than I do. So... Um, but, but that's what's going on. It's really a story of two different groups of people, two different churches. And as I was reading through this and looking at it, I couldn't help but think of something that some people call second child syndrome. Yes, second child syndrome. And uh, if you haven't heard about it, you still know about it. Um, if you have kids or you've seen kids or you were a kid, you know about this probably. Why? Because... Whenever a first child comes, they get all the attention in the world. But then a second child normally comes, and that child then gets so much more of the attention that the first child got. And the emphasis is often on the second child by necessity, whether that's, uh, whether that's feeding, diaper changes, all sorts of things. The baby needs attention. Everyone knows that. The baby gets priority because... Babies will die without any supervision. I mean, they just kind of, like, they constantly need help. They constantly need work. Uh, you can't even let them sleep by themselves. Not, I'm not advocating for co-sleeping. I'm just saying you, you can't even let them lay there without fearing that they're going to flip over on their face. I mean, they just need a lot of attention. And, and so the second child typically gets more attention than the first child has had. And when that happens, the first child normally gets angry, uh, depressed, all sorts of things. And, and so some people have, have dubbed this as the second child syndrome. And I know that we've seen it with our own family. Uh, when we have our, had our uh, second son, Judson, the first son, he didn't want any part of it. He was like, who is this guy? I mean, he's like coming in my house, taking my resources. And uh, so we asked him, and we have this on video, but we asked him, uh, Kaden, do you love your brother, your new brother? Nope. <laughs> Are you glad that he's part of our family? Nope. Do you love chocolate? Yep. So there's no, there's like no guessing about it. He knows what he's saying, even as a, a, a three-year-old. So um, children are like this, but it doesn't even stop with just this second child, having a second child in the mix. We found it true having a third one. So when we had a third son, then the second son was far worse. He screamed for weeks every time he saw him, the new one. He couldn't even like be in the same room without making himself so upset he would throw up, literally. He was like, I need attention. Get this guy out of here. And, and so he definitely had the same problem. So I don't think it's only a second child syndrome. I think it's far more than that. And if you think about it, as I was thinking about it, it goes far beyond childhood. 
I can even remember this happening in high school. When you start to develop your group of friends, it's very kind of delicate, tentative. You're like, are you my friend? Like, do we need to sign something? And you get your group of friends, and then you may have someone else kind of come into your life and the group of friends, and then you realize they're kind of like you. And they might even say the same words that you say. They may say something, uh, something similar, some adjective like sweet, and you stop and you're like, wait a second, that's my word. You can't say my word. Who are you? And, and then you start to get kind of defensive, and they're like, why are you, you're just taking, you're taking too much. Like, you gotta go. And uh, that happens, I think, with all of us in high school, but I can actually even remember it after that. Um, and I think it still goes on to some degree, but uh, in seminary. So probably four years ago, when we moved, or we actually do a little pre-visit to Louisville, Kentucky, to check out seminary, and and we're, we're meeting people, meeting the professors, going around to the campus, all sorts of things. And, and then we meet a group of friends that we kind of make, or like, hey, we're new, we're checking this place out. And I meet a man, a young man named Jeremy Griswold. And, and we're kind of cordial with one another. He works at the seminary, but I can tell he's kind of like, you don't go here yet, so like, don't talk to me. And I was like, man, this guy. And so we, we actually, we don't know anything about each other. But then I eventually um, start talking to him a little bit more, and I'm wearing Chacos, and if you know anything about Chacos, they're like the ultimate sandal. I mean, you can walk on lava with these things. They're incredible. And I love them, and he, he criticizes my footwear. He's like, what are those? River shoes? And I was like, who are you? Like, these are the best pair of sandals in the world. And he's from California, and so then I said, you don't even know what Mexican food is. Like, and so we, we kind of, we didn't really hit it off, but we were around each other all week long through various uh, different friends. And then it came time to, to leave to go back to Texas after the preview. Uh, and so we kind of hugged people, said goodbye and all that. And I'll never forget, and he, he doesn't either, because I talked to him about this. But we, we went to say goodbye to each other. And it was a very kind of stiff, like, see ya. And we turned and walked away from each other. And we both thought, never going to see that guy again. And uh, he's actually one of my best friends to this day. We had a number of classes together. And I got to know him. He got to know me. And the, the prejudice that was involved dropped. And um, he's one of the people I probably respect the most in this world. Uh, just a very, very kind, very thorough, very encouraging man. And so I tell you that story to say that's the sort of dynamic that we all have. Whether, whether you're young or you're old, we have this sort of proclivity, this tendency to view people in a certain light that we don't know. We don't know anything about them. And that's actually a good definition of prejudice. Uh, it would be this, that preconceived opinion that's not based on reason or actual experience. You see, my two-year-old didn't know anything about his younger brother. Nothing. Had never met him before. All he knew was, I do not like you. You're taking my resources. You're in my world. And that's so much of prejudice. And we could go on. I mean, it doesn't only stop there. It doesn't stop when we're young. It doesn't stop when we get older. It is in all areas of life. All areas of life. And we know this. Whether it's socioeconomic groups whether it's race, whether it's politics, whether it's religion, like this, this mentality just permeates so much of our lives. 
It's an issue. And, and John Piper talks about it in his book on bloodlines, saying this, what we need is a miracle. I mean that literally, a supernatural inbreaking of God through the gospel of Christ. It is not even possible to describe the hope-filled relational dynamics that may happen when the, when the gospel explodes in two hearts that bring such radically different experiences of sin and suffering to the relationship. In the midst of this sort of mindset of prejudice, what Piper says here is that you need a miracle to get over it. It's not going to happen easily, and it's not going to happen naturally. And that is actually good news for us, because what we see here this morning in the text in Acts 11 is a miracle. And it is very much according to prejudice. And so let me give you the main point today. The main point is this, that Christians should care for one another without prejudice. We can talk about people outside the church and all over, but what we see here in the text today is really about believers. It's about believers within a local church and then believers even from one church to another church. So the main point today is Christians should care for one another without prejudice. And as I was reading to you in Acts 11, what we see is some people have a very big problem with Peter going to the Gentiles, the Greeks, the non-Jews, to share the gospel with him. And he knew, Peter knew, that he was going to take some heat for it. And he even told them, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be talking with you because you're not Jewish. I shouldn't stay at your house. I shouldn't eat your food. But God told me I should go. And so we see Peter out. We won't read the full, the full uh, range of verses in the first third of this chapter but I'll just give you the summary here that, that Peter, Peter goes to share the gospel with the Gentiles and he knew that he was going to get into trouble for it. And so here's, here's what happens. He says, I'm going to tell you step by step what happened. And here are the highlights from the passage that he gives. He recounts his vision of a sheep being lowered from heaven, the directions for him to kill and eat, his response of no to God, which is gutsy. God's response telling him that he should not call anything unclean that he has made clean. And then Peter and some other Jews go to him, uh, go to Cornelius' house, the, the Greek, with him and share the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls on them and they're saved. You see, God's inclusion of the Gentiles into his salvation through Christ was a message that was especially difficult for Peter to understand. And he's telling other people about that now. He said, I know it's hard for you. It's hard for me. And talking about Peter's difficulty here, the theologian John Stott says it this way. He says, it took four hammer blows of divine revelation for Peter's <coughs> racial and religious prejudice to be overcome. I love that. Four divine hammer blows. Peter is such a knothead that he needs God to tell him four times, go to these people. Share the gospel with them. And he does, and now he's bringing that message back to these other people. And if it was true of Peter, that this was hard for him, it was especially true for everyone else. Think about it. Peter is the person who spent the most time with Jesus. Three years of his life. His top disciple. Leading the church in Jerusalem. And he had a hard time with this. So he's, 
He's telling people. He's telling people what God has done and how he's on the move. And so let's pick up with the kind of summary, the conclusion in verse 17 of Peter's story here. He says, if then God gave the same gifts to them, that's the Greeks, the Hellenists, non-Jews, if he gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, Peter essentially reports that God is on the move to save all people who repent of their sin and turn to Christ. Salvation is a gift, and God gives it to the Jews and the Gentiles, blowing their mind. This is a cause and effect relationship that's going on here, and it's a little bit difficult to see, so let me, let me hone in and, and uh, show it to you. But as Luke's writing, he's showing a cause and effect relationship. You see, the same words are being used. He says that the Holy Spirit fell on them, on these Gentiles. And then he says the response to the people that hear this message in verse 18 is that they fell silent. That they fell silent. The effect is this, that when we see the grace of God in Christ accepted by other people that we don't like, it silences our criticism. Just like it silenced the Jews' criticism here. Why would you go to them, Peter? They're not a part of us. They eat pork. Doesn't matter. God extended grace to them. He's on the move. And if he's on the move, then I'm going to join with him. And so a little bit of cash value here for us is this, that if there are people in your life you don't like, I know you may not have like, like hardcore enemies, but... I'm sure that there's people in your life you probably think of and maybe you wouldn't do anything mean to them, but if something bad happened to them, that would be okay. That's the kind of scenario here between the Jews and the Gentiles that's going on. And Peter says, uh, Luke tells us that when, when they saw, when they heard that the grace of God fell on the Gentiles, it shut their mouths. They said, God's going to do what he wants to do. And then Peter goes a little bit further there to say, who am I that I should stand in God's way? Literally, he uses a word to say stand as in hinder. Uh, if you <laughs> ever play racquetball, that's what you say, hinder. Like someone's in my way, I was trying to do it, I couldn't get there. So Peter says, literally, that who am I to stand in God's way? Like, who, am I, who am I to hinder God? Who am I to stop God? which really has a twofold effect. One is to say, how are you going to stop God? Like He's God. Who are you? But then it, it also has the effect to say that if you're going to do this, if you're going to not be gracious to other people, if you're going to not share the gospel with other people, then you will actually find yourself not in line with God, but opposed to God. And he will knock you down is the implication. And so Peter gives them this beautiful truth that God is on the move. God is on the move. And, and his response is to say, essentially, if God's on the move, if he's doing this, I've got to go with him. 
the conclusion of Peter's report is that if the Gentiles, if these other people accept the gospel, then it's not just for me. God's grace is not just for me. And this is the mentality that's going on in the Jewish mind and in the Jewish culture. There's only so much of God's grace to go around. It's the same mentality of the toddler. It's the same mentality of the child. There's only so much of this going around. If anyone else comes in, I lose. And this is not what is actually happening. God says there's more than enough to share. And Peter realizes that if God's on the move to save other people, he needs to graciously accept that. And so that's the first point this morning, that that in order to care for one another without prejudice, that we actually have to own, we have to see, we have to realize, we have to accept that God is gracious to other people, not just us. And that's a hard lesson, but it's an initial lesson that we have to have to actually be able to go to other people and help them. So that's the first thing, by accepting God's grace to others. But then we see a second thing, and it's this, that we can care for other believers without prejudice by sending encouragement. That kind of surprised me as I was looking through this, like, okay, God's doing something that's good, accepted, and this other one's not complicated at all. Like, just go encourage them. And if we were to stop the sermon just on the first point without getting into the second, it would be a huge failure this morning. It would be a failure because believers in Christ are not supposed to spectate. We don't see someone else in need. We don't see God's grace out there for someone else, them accept it and say, well, good for them. No, God wants us to be players in this life, and he wants us to go and encourage other people. And so that's what we see here in the next section. And and Luke will kind of zoom the camera lens way out, so we're way down specific on a certain conversation with a certain group of people. But then he moves on and kind of zooms out to get the whole spread of what's happening. And he does that in verse 19. I'll read that for you. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. So this is the normal behavior. Jesus is risen. He's the king of all things. He's the savior of the world. We tell the Jewish people because Jesus was Jewish. But, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we see the same sort of episode with Peter happened, but everywhere. I mean, they go out from Jerusalem, from the stoning of Stephen, and and they just land everywhere. And they start telling everybody about this good news about Christ. And then even non-Jews begin believing. And the church in Jerusalem hears about it. And and a, a large concentration of them land in Antioch. And just to tell you a little bit about Antioch, it is, uh, it is geographically north of Jerusalem, but uh, it's also one of the, the biggest cities in the ancient world. Josephus, a 
a Jewish historian, said that it was the third among the cities in the Roman world. So you have Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. This place is a metroplex. It's huge. Tons of worldviews, tons of people, lots of mixings of race, religion, and culture. And so in this city is the city that so many of the Christians land. The, the Christians who are Jewish, and now the Christians who are non-Jewish, Greek. And the gospel is moving through the entire city like wildfire. And as that happens, now Luke will focus the lens back down onto the relationship between the two churches. And so in verse 22, he says this, that the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They heard about it. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. The Jerusalem church hears about the movement of God and sends Barnabas to do some reconnaissance and support for this new church. Now, this is a little bit of a, uh, a humorous episode here because Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. So the Jerusalem church hears what's going on at Antioch. They said, there's believers up there. They need help. They need support. They need encouragement. They don't have any of the apostles. They don't have any of the, the core disciples. So what we're going to do is we're going to send someone to encourage them. And what I love here is they didn't say, we need, um, we need, we need Thomas. Go send, no, no, Thomas was down there. Okay, we can't send Thomas. Who are we going to send? Uh, and they just didn't send someone who was like brand new to the faith, who hadn't demonstrated any maturity. No, what they say is we are going to send our best person. We're going to send our best resource, our best encourager. We want to encourage the church, and so we're going to send Barnabas, the best encourager, literally. So I don't know if people just called him encourager or walking around or how that worked, but that's what his name means. So he goes there, and, and the result is incredible. A great many people were added to the Lord because of this man's encouragement. And the point here is this, I think, that we really just need encouragement sometimes. As believers in Christ, we really need it. Whether it's one church to another church, or it's one church member to another member, we desperately need it. Sometimes we just need to hear that Jesus really did rise from the dead, and this whole thing is not wasted. I don't know about you, that's what I need to hear sometimes. When I think about like why I spend the time and energy I do as a believer, or maybe it is that you need to hear that he's not finished with us yet. Like in Philippians 1.6, when Paul tells the church that he's not done with you yet. Be encouraged. God's still doing things. You may have failures. You may have setbacks, but he's still proving his character in you. Or maybe that you just need to hear Sometimes, like we did this morning, that this desire for worship from all nations to come to Jesus is a real thing. That in Revelation 5, what we see will actually happen. It will happen in your own personal life and everyone's life who's a believer one day. Or maybe it is that you just need to hear this morning 
that God loves you. I think that's an easy one to overlook. Or just take it for granted. John 3.16, God to love the world. But maybe that is the encouragement that you need. In the midst of everything going on, just hear and feel to some degree that God loves you. He sent his son for you. There's all sorts of encouragement that we need. This is why Barnabas goes to Antioch. Because he realizes that the church needs encouragement. And it's not just encouragement and devotion, which is what we are talking about, what we see happen. But it's encouragement coupled with teaching. And that's the next bit that we see in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who we heard about recently. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You see, Barnabas knew the work was way too great for him. He could not do it himself. Yes, he's the son of encouragement. He has outstanding gifts and encouragement. But he's not enough. He needs help. So he goes to get Saul, who is then renamed Paul. And they begin teaching in the church. This this powerful combination of encouragement and teaching come together. And it produces an incredible reputation for the church. And it's really important that the, the teaching here is, is an aspect of the church because it's not like they were just encouraging, saying, be your best self. You can do it. What you need is more self-confidence. That's not the message that's going on here. The message is God is great. Put your trust in him. It's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's Jesus has conquered death. So you don't need to fear anything. Encouragement coupled with teaching produces power in this church. And they get a reputation for themselves. Some of you, I would say in our church, are just, you're kind of like Barnabas. Naturally and supernaturally, you can encourage people with a word. It may, be, it may be something you don't even think is important or impressive, but God uses it to really fuel the faith of someone else. Maybe it's just a word. Maybe it's a hug. Maybe, maybe it's just a quick comment about how you are proud of that person. Some of you are really like that. And when the, when the body of Christ, when the church begins to operate in its giftings and come together and work like that, The result here that we see is growth. The church grows and it gets a reputation. They get branded. They get branded for something. And what do they get branded for? The incredible thing is that they get branded as Christians. The first time in the history of the world, a group is called, people are talking about them all the time. They're known in the city. In Jerusalem, they're like, well, we're, we're Jews. We believe in Jesus. Messianic Jews. They didn't have Messianic Jews. They just said, we're Jews. What do, you, what do you want? Jesus is Jewish. We believe in Jesus. We're believers who are Jewish in Jesus. Uh, but you needed something else in Antioch with all the different worldviews where you have Jews and Greeks. And so people started talking about them. And the result here that we see is eventually people say, what do we call these people? They're talking about Jesus all the time. And they're caring for the poor. And they're encouraging. And they're helping people out. I know what we'll call them. We'll call them Christians. We'll call them little Christers. 
which originally is not a great term. It's actually, it's actually like a swear word originally. Um, but you can think about it in terms of a Jesus mini-me. That's essentially what they're saying. It's like, yeah, that criminal who was crucified, you're just like him. You're just like him. And that is the reputation that the church gets because of the way they're acting. You're just like Jesus. Wouldn't that be a fantastic reputation to have? We just throw the word Christian around so easily in our culture, and it means some probably non-committal things, but to be able to say, that person's like Jesus. I've heard about him, I never met him, but what I heard, that's what they're doing. And so for us, I think they really merit some questions for us individually even. Like, what do you want to be known for? I think a lot of us want to be known for, for being wealthy, or being powerful, or even maybe something you consider more positive, like being caring. What do you want to be known for? But then you also have to ask the question, I think, as I was thinking about this, not only what do you want to be known for, but what are you actually known for? You may want to be somebody who is generous, caring, loving, patient, but how are you actually known? How do people actually interact with you and experience you? And we can even go on from there. It's not even about one individual person as we see this with this entire church. So I ask you, what do you want our church to be known for? And then again, what is our church actually known for? And as I was praying about it this week, I just kind of felt God saying, is the church actually known? Like for Antioch, the whole community could say, we know these people. We know what they're doing in our world, in our city. But for us, is our church actually known in this area? Is it actually changing lives, impacting people with the gospel? Something to consider. That this is what God is calling us to. That the church would have a reputation that represents him well in the world. And the reason that they have this reputation is because they embrace encouragement. So we see that God calls Christians to care for one another, and that happens by accepting his grace to other people. We don't just say it's only for us, it's also for other people, but it's also by the Jerusalem church sending this encouragement and the Antiochian church accepting the encouragement. We're not... The church in Antioch could very well have said, you want to encourage us? We got our own people, thanks. But they didn't. They willingly accepted it. And last this morning, the last thing that we see is that the church can care for one another by receiving help. So let's pick up in verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, but one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I don't know about you, but I was the first couple times I read this, I thought, oh right, I understand there's, there's this problem with the church in Jerusalem. 
accepting other believers from another church, and then they say, you know what, we accept that, we welcome it, God is doing something in you, we want to be a part of that, we'll send you encouragement, we'll provide support and help you, and then you get to verse 27, and you read about some prophecy and a famine, <laughs> like, what is going on here? This doesn't make any sense. I, I think it does make sense, and maybe, maybe not initially. You see, what happens here is really something that's beautiful. We're not going to get into the uh, intricacies of the gifts of the Spirit and whether they're still going on or they're not today. Uh, save that for another Sunday, perhaps in First Corinthians. But uh, for now, we just see that there was a huge need that opened up for the church in Jerusalem. And it hadn't even happened yet, but through prophecy and God speaking through somebody to the church in Antioch, they said, you know what? The, not just the church in Jerusalem, the entire church in Judea, the whole region, they're going to have some serious problems. They're going to need some serious help. There's going to be a famine. There's going to be a food shortage. They're already experiencing persecution. They're not going to have the resources. People aren't going to be kind to them. So they're going to need help. And the church in Antioch saw this and said, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to help them? We're going to send them something. And so what we see here is something really beautiful. We see the church in Jerusalem actually change roles. The church in Jerusalem is, is the big dog. It's the one who's sending people out all across the world, sending people to Antioch for encouragement, doing all sorts of things. But God orchestrates a change where all of a sudden, the church that has been receiving grace, now is the church that's sending the grace. The church in Jerusalem that was sending is now receiving, to say it the other way. And this is something that I think it just really cuts the last string of pride attached to the Jerusalem church. It would be really easy for the Jerusalem church to say, yes, you're a new church, and you have new believers, and you're doing things, that's great. We want to send you support. We want to send you help. It would be really easy for them to do that in a way that they're looking down their noses at them. You're not Jewish. You're not from Jerusalem. You didn't spend time with Jesus. He didn't stay in your city. It would be really easy for them to do that, to still be prideful. But God orchestrates a change where they actually have to receive good from them. They have to receive help. And as I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't, it might be a little bit dated, but I couldn't help remembering the movie, Remember the Titans, which I think is maybe like 20 years old now, which makes me feel old. But in, in that movie, the whole movie is filled with racial tension. It's a fantastic movie. It's about football and football coaches. And, and by the end of it, you see that one team is battling another team. The Titans are battling I don't even remember the name of the other team, but they're battling somebody, and it's the uh, the last game. And by the half halfway mark of the game, they realize they're just getting creamed. The defense of the Titans is getting totally creamed. I mean, they're losing every play, and and then the uh, the coach over the defense, Coach Ghost, finally has someone come up to him and say like. Hey, why don't you go ask the coach, Coach Boone, for help? And he's like, no, I'm not going to ask him for help. And he just totally stiff arms him, wants to do everything his way. 
But the opposing team knows all the plays of Coach Yost. They know it everything. And so they're just creaming the defense. And then, eventually, Coach Yost has a change. You see, he was fine accepting the fact that uh, racial prejudice was not a good thing. And he was fine even extending help to the coach, uh, Coach Boone. But what he was not fine with was accepting help. He said, anything but that. I'm not going to accept your help. And he had to come to a point in the movie, at the very end, where he, where he says this to the team at Hubble. I hope you boys have learned as much from me this year as I've learned from you. You've taught this city how to trust the soul of a man rather than the look of him. And I guess it's about time I joined the club. And he says, Herman, I sure could use your help. Ed Henry's kicking my rear out there. And he doesn't say rear, obviously. And that's what's happening. He came to a point where he realized, you know what? There's the last reservoir of pride in me that just says, I don't need your help. And God orchestrates things for the Jerusalem church such that they're in positions where they say, we'll accept it. Any help that you can give, we'll accept it. And what's the overall effect of this, of the, the church, the dynamic of the church in Jerusalem and the church in, India, in Antioch? What's happening? What's happening is they're starting to work together. You see, just like my, my sons, eventually, as they learn each other, they drop their prejudice, they spend more time with one another, then they actually start working together. They're still young, so who knows what's going to happen. But at least right now, they're starting to do things together. You want this toy? I'll give it to you. I have it. That's fine. You have that toy? Can I have that toy? Yes, I have. Uh, I like it. And that's what's happening with the church. And so for, for us, one of the things that, uh, that we churches are really notorious about is not being that way for other churches. I mean, maybe within a church. And I think there's growth for us that we need to do that with one another more. But one of the things that everyone knows is churches just do not cooperate very well together. And so one of the things that we're going to institute uh, starting today is that every week in our service, we're just going to take a couple minutes to pray for another church in our area. We don't know what God will do with that. We don't know all the relationships that will develop. We're not really asking uh, for anything from anyone else, but we just want to take a little bit of time to try to implement what we see here. And wouldn't it be fantastic if our church and other churches in the area came together more for the sake of the gospel? What if our church not only just joined with other churches, but what, what about inwardly if we were more gracious, more caring, less prejudiced against one another, that we actually come together and embrace good gospel teaching and good gospel encouragement, and the result that we see here is growth. People see that in our cities, and they say, that's not like anything else. Doesn't happen in politics, doesn't happen in sports. Like, how do you guys all fit together? That's what's got, what God is doing. And that's what I pray he would do in our church. So let's take a moment to pray for another church. We're going to pray for Providence North Community Church.